trying to get them reconnected with learning and liking learning and planning for the future, a lot of those things are, you know, quite frankly, a lot more important than how they're doing on a standardized test. Hey again, everyone, and welcome to another Modern Learners Podcast. I'm Will Richardson, your host, and this week, Bruce and I talk with Peter Wizarek, the director of Northwest Passage High School, a public charter school in Coon Rapids, Minnesota. Northwest Passage is breaking new ground in featuring a school experience that places student-directed project-based learning at the center, but it also features a series of expeditions where students take overnight excursions of up to two weeks into the real world really deepen the learning they're doing in school. It's a fascinating conversation about what it means to be truly different and the opportunities and challenges that go along with that. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Just a quick reminder, as always, this episode is being brought to you by Change School. If you happen to be looking for a powerful professional learning experience that can help you understand those challenges to school change even more deeply, our eighth cohort of Change School starts in mid-June 2019. And you can get all the details at change.school. Registration is already open. Check it out. Bring some friends or even a team from your school to make the learning even better. And finally, don't forget that our first two Modern Learners courses are now online too. The first on reimagining assessment is at modernlearners.com slash assessment. And our second course, our newest one, an introduction to the 10 principles for schools of modern learning, is up at modernlearners.com slash 10, the number's 10P course. They're the first in a number of courses that we'll be releasing throughout 2019, and I hope you'll check them out. But for now, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Peter Wizarek. Cheers, everyone. So, Peter, you know, I know that Northwest Passage is a public charter in Minnesota, and, and just at the beginning of this conversation, I just wanted to um, kind of allay the, not fears, but the, the, the suspicions maybe that some people have of charter schools and, you know, their ability to do things that maybe regular traditional public schools can. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm just wondering um, if you talk a little bit about um, whether or not you have free reign to innovate or whether you think there's anything that you're really doing in, in your school that can't be done um, in other schools. Obviously, we're going to get into a longer conversation about what those particulars are. But just to start it off, I mean, um, are, are, you, are you unique in that aspect and your ability to, to do different stuff? Yeah, so in Minnesota, legislatively, as a charter school, one of the primary purposes is innovation. And so there are five components of innovation that charter schools need to have at least one of. And those can be um, unique and innovative teaching methods. They can be... Um, Uh, how the school is run, uh, whether that's a uh, teacher-led school um, and uh, how uh, staff development's done. Um, And so there are um, things within statute that are set up to encourage that um, and to really kind of force you to think about as as you're starting to put together a charter, what is it that's going to be different? And so why should you exist um, instead of, um, you know, the, the school down, down the block or within the district? Um, what's different about you that uh, provides a, a unique and innovative approach to, to teaching and learning? 
So what is it that's different about you then? I mean, what is your your innovation strand or the thing that you would you would put your innovation hat on? Right. So for us, it's really two things when it comes to teaching and learning. Um, the first one is is project based learning, and in the I think maybe truer sense of project based learning on the continuum of student directed personal learning where um, students really have that opportunity to explore um, interests and passions that they have within the context of what are the required learning targets and, and graduation requirements, um, but having that freedom and flexibility uh, of really that student autonomy and agency. Um, and then the other one that I think sets us apart from even uh, other innovative uh, project-based learning schools in the state is our expeditionary learning. Um, we offer upwards of 20 um, overnight learning expeditions at no cost to students and families um, that are really designed to take education, take learning outside the four walls of the school, um, build relationships, uh, provide experiences and opportunities for learning that um, you know are not uh, not standard in, in most schools. I'm interested that uh, coincidentally it's a week in change school that we're talking about uh, telling a story and I'm interested how you tell your story because it strikes me that you're, uh, you're not only in the normal minefield of telling stories, the story that's trying to cut a different path that we see in say the public sector, but you've got charter wrapped around you as well, mm -hmm. which has, we'll have to say, as you know, our audience is well outside the United States. So for, for a lot of people, the, the notion of charter still is a bit um, uh, unknown to them. But certainly to many charters uh, um, have had appeal to for-profit organisations. Um, they've been started up because they're a failing environment and it's almost like an act of desperation. Um, there have been ideological or political initiatives behind them, whereas it strikes me that you've been somehow, I don't <laughs> somehow able to cut through that. Um, I would suspect from what you've just said, an element of that's come from the, 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 the legislative structure that's been set up in, in, in Minnesota. But also I'm interested in how you message through that. I mean, how are you able to build your brand that defines exactly who you are? You're, I think you're right when it comes to um, sort of the the language and the the baggage that comes around chartering, um, you know. There's I think it's 44 uh, states in Washington D.C. that now um, have some form of of charter law, and I think there's 44 different variations of that. Um, you know, in Minnesota, I think we have been um, we have been ahead of the curve in being the the first state to do it. Um, and so I think we've sort of learned along the way um, how to navigate um, what it means to be a charter. And um, we've avoided a lot of the, the for-profit and um, quasi-private uh, chartering that other parts of the country are, are dealing with. Um, and then for us, what, what really it's been about is providing another option and an opportunity for high school students. Um, when we first started 20 years ago, uh, we were a credit recovery program. We looked very different than we do now. 
Uh, we were serving almost exclusively seniors and super seniors, students who'd passed their cohort date but still wanted to get a high school diploma rather than dropping out or getting a GED. Um, and um, that was great at, at first and, and we served a lot of students and we helped a lot of students get that high school diploma. Um, but we knew as a staff and as a team that there was more that we could do. And um, it started with talking with the students. And one of the things that came back time and time again was if I had had an opportunity to be in a smaller school with more connections, better relationships with the staff and teachers that I had, more opportunity to sort of find my own path, maybe I wouldn't have been in this place where I'm at where I'm so far behind in credits. And that was a big aha moment for us. That was kind of the light bulb to say, okay, we can do some things differently. Um, and so we spent, this is about 14 years ago now, we spent about a year researching, reading, visiting other schools, talking to other people, gathering, uh, working as a team to kind of figure out what it is that we want to do and what we can do that's different. And things that came out of that conversation and all that work that we spent were we want to make sure that we have a small school. So we've decided we're going to keep school no more than 185 students. We know we want to keep class sizes small. Um, and so we've committed to not having more than 16 students to, to one staff, an actual uh, student to staff ratio with classrooms no larger than, than 16. We knew we wanted to build strong relationships and so advisory became one of the hallmarks of what we do and long-term advisory, not um, kind of, you know, homeroom on steroids, but real advisory where students in multi-age groups spent three, four, five years with the same advisor. So they got to know them, the advisor got to know the student as, as a person, not just, um, you know, someone kind of rotating through their class every 55 minutes. Um, we knew we wanted to build in uh, a project-based learning model that really gave students that agency to explore things that they were interested in, be able to address their learning styles and where they wanted to go. And then we knew uh, really because a lot of us had come out of, a lot of the teaching staff had come out of a background in youth work and experiential education, we wanted that experiential expeditionary piece that we could really get students out and learn by doing. Um, and all of that built around this idea of relationships and being connected with students. So how do you message that? I mean, that's, that's an extraordinary amount of work that you've, you've put together. And, most, and I might say particularly in the way that originated. It mm -hmm. originated from the kids and, and yeah. what you and what you were observing and listening to what they were saying about why they were with you in that credit recovery process. So you go down that journey and decide that this is the path you want to take. But but that that's an ongoing public dialogue that you have to mm -hmm. have as well as a private one amongst yourselves. How, how do you engage people beyond the school with the message about what you believe in, what you stand for in a way that you know, cuts through the, as I said, the static, the distraction yeah. of, of what both uh, any alternative or different school might look like, a charter might look like. How do you do that? 
Yeah, you know, and that's that's sort of the ongoing difficulty. Um, you know, you would think that um, it would be sort of an easy sell. Um, but, you know, I think the reality is a lot of people are um, used to what they went to school, how school looked for them. And, you know, as parents, you have your students go to this elementary school in your neighborhood, and then you move to the middle school, and then you move to the, to the high school. Um, and you don't think a whole lot about it unless there's some reason or something interferes with that. And so for us, a lot of our students are coming um, from having been in their homeschool originally and needing some change. And so, you know, how do we get that message out there? Uh, a lot of it has to do with trying to build those relationships with the district school, um, with the, the middle schools, um, and, you know, talking about it from a perspective of what's best for students and not necessarily um, being so focused on keeping our students in in our school you know and there's a lot of this dialogue i think nationally right now about where that that ha how that happens and and um you know who those students kind of belong to where they go and and i keep coming to it from the perspective of we need to be honest about what's best for students and some students the traditional large suburban school that you know we're uh, you know, in that same um, geographic area works really well for students, but it doesn't work for all students. And so I think we have to have those honest conversations back and forth and talk about what it is that um, is best for students. Um, I think we've been really open about offering staff development and um, school visits. Over the course of the last three to five years, I probably have regularly 15 to 20 schools come visit us from all over the state and even some adjacent states, um, just interested in how we do what we do, what we're doing, being open about that, um, you know, trying not to be in this, this competitive field, but talking about what works best for students. And here's some of our successes, here's some of our best practices. They may or may not work exactly the same with you, but if they, if they do and they help your students, wonderful. Um, you know, the other thing that we've done a lot of is being a part of our community. And, you know, we do quite a bit of service learning. We do a lot of that field-based education, um, having students get out and learning. Um, and so people see our students and recognize uh, the work that they're doing, um, you know, when it comes to expeditions. Uh, you know, in some ways, those are, are pretty easy sells because uh, it's unique and, and innovative in the sense of, you know, having uh, student groups doing as much travel as we do. And so that starts to pique people's curiosity. And then from there, it's just having those those conversations. Are those people mostly from other charter schools or are they from public schools or across the whole, the whole gamut or what? Really the whole gamut. And um, it's it's been really encouraging that there are more district public schools coming in to, to visit. Um, and it, we're partnering with a number of them uh, to just talk about things like, you know, what's the, what's the value of long-term advisory models or how do you scale project-based learning if you're in a system that has 55 minute blocks and you don't have the sort of lesser time constraints that we do, how can we do that? And just having those, those discussions has been great. 
sometimes, you know, for me to sort of wrap my head around back into sort of that traditional model, it's like, how would I do it if I had, you know, a, a more traditional calendar and schedule? Um, and so it's a challenge for me too to kind of go back and forth with other teachers and administrators and talk about how do we, how do we make that work? So I'm just wondering if your kids have the same outcomes, do they have to meet the state standards, pass the state test? I mean, all that other stuff that, that kids in traditional public schools have to do, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they have the same um, content standard uh, requirements, credit requirements. Um, they still have to take the, the state tests in 10th and 11th grade. Um, so they have those those same requirements. And, yeah. and even though you're doing things really differently, they're doing okay with that? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's this interesting kind of uh, set of students that we have. We definitely have a group of students who have struggled in traditional models. And so, you know, when you look at our test scores, they're not necessarily the greatest. Um, you know, I don't hold a whole lot of stock in standardized testing in general, um, and so our our state report card doesn't look nearly as good as as a lot of other schools. Um, but we're also a high school, in and in Minnesota, we only have tenth and eleventh grade um, standardized testing, state level testing, and often we don't even get our students till eleventh grade. And so, um, you know, we don't even have an opportunity with that. Um, so, a big part for us is this whole idea of really rekindling the hope uh, for students, because a lot of our, our kids are coming in pretty beat down from sort of school and, you know, things going on in their world. And so trying to get them reconnected with learning and liking learning and planning for the future, a lot of those things are, you know, quite frankly, a lot more important than how they're doing on a standardized test. And so, I mean, my sense of it is that I think a lot of people look at the types of things that you're doing and they know intellectually and, and probably in their heart of hearts that that type of experience around learning is a really powerful one. When kids are doing real work for real audiences in a real community that they choose, you know, that they care about, I mean, that just makes common sense. Um, to most people, but then they struggle with applying that common sense to the um, to the traditional, you know, school system and structure and all that type of stuff. Do you get any sense that there are more people now who are kind of looking at what you're doing? And I mean, you're getting visitors, but do you get the sense that the conversation's changing in terms of when we talk about thinking about schools differently, that it's not just about how we get better test scores, but it, that it really is changing the whole experience that kids have in school. Do you have any sense of that? Yeah, you know, I, I do. And in the last, I don't know, probably three or four years, um, I've seen a bit more of a shift. And, you know, part of it is coming from teachers and administrators um, who are looking for something different. They know in their hearts that uh, what you're talking about is is best for students, um, but it is sometimes it's a tough sell with with parents uh, at the beginning for sure. Um, and I think, quite honestly, I think that's sometimes why it takes students going into more that traditional model and then not necessarily being successful. And then we're looking for something else. And one of the things I hear 
more often than not is I wish we just tried you from the beginning. I wish we had taken that risk. Um, and, and I have those honest conversations. When I do information meetings for incoming students and, and families, one of the things I talk to them about is what I feel like what we're doing is, I know what we're doing is much better for learning and for student autonomy and for um, where students want to go with their lives and having those, those real audiences. Um, but it's a risk for parents to make that decision. And, and I talk honestly about that with them. And, you know, then you have to sort of back it up with them also and say, here's what our graduates have done. Our graduates go on to four-year colleges. Our students go on to tech programs. We have an incredible entrepreneurial class of graduates. And I think that really comes from having that independent project-based mind where um, as a student, I can explore the things that I'm interested in. Um, and, you know, having those conversations um, starts to, to change that dialogue with parents. And, and we're seeing more and more um, incoming true ninth graders than we ever have in the past. And I, I only see that growing as that message gets out there. So how do you, how do you recruit? How do people select the school? And what are the circumstances under which um, they come to you? In other words, uh, um, do you interview, do they have to go through an interview process? What's that whole, what's it look like? Yeah. So uh, we're fully a public school. The only uh, way that we wouldn't take a student is if we don't have space. Like I said, we're committed to 185 students. We want to keep that small school size. Um, so as long as we have space within the building, um, we take any student who is interested um, I always do a sit down conversation with students and parents when um, they're interested in enrolling um, because I want them to know, you know, fully what to expect. It's not the same thing. You know, you're not going to have um, a schedule that is determined at the beginning of the year and first period is, you know, ninth grade English all the way through. And so I want to make sure that they understand what that looks like, what our learning model is. Um, I also want to get to know the student uh, before they come in, not so that I can make a selection because I'm not doing that. It's really about what are they interested in? What are they passionate about? What are the things that they want to learn more about? Um, it helps me then with deciding who their advisor is going to be, pairing them with the right people. Um, and so it is that process of, of really trying to get to know the student, the family, uh, before they come in so that we can try and make the best fit for that. And so, um, you know, again, it goes back to little over half of our students are looking for something different partially partway through their, their high school time. And then the other ones are um, coming in as more of those true ninth graders um, looking for this to be their first and only high school experience. Um, we've got some good relationships with uh, a couple of the other charter schools that only go through eighth grade and um, not that we're direct feeder programs, but uh, right. there's some similarities uh, between what we do and what they do. And so those are some natural fits. Um, we've really uh, done well, I think, with 
families who homeschooled. And it's kind of interesting with homeschooling, often students get to high school and parents are saying, I'm not sure if I can do the content anymore. And there's that social aspect and those kind of pieces. Um, and so we see an influx um, of students coming from homeschool. Um, but, you know, we also have a very high population of um, special education students, students on IEPs, um, because I think with an IEP, it looks a lot like our PLP, our personal learning plan. They overlay really well. Every student in school has a, a PLP. Um, and so they're, they're making those plans. They have goals set. They're, they're um, really helping define what that looks like. Uh, parents like the idea of the small school, small class sizes, more individualized uh, personal learning. Um, and so that, um, that attracts a lot of, a lot of families. Um, you know, I think unfortunately we're dealing with a higher uh, percentage of students just across the board in the middle school teenage years dealing with things like anxiety and depression. Um, and again, small setting is um, I think a really good thing and having those long-term relationships with adults in the building and not having so many transitions. I think all of those things um, feed into how students find us and we're constantly out there, you know, talking to parent groups and, uh, you know, I do monthly open houses. Um, every first Friday we have a student expo where, um, you know, uh, community is welcome to come and see what students are doing. Um, and so we have those kind of outreach things, just trying to get that message out there that there's, there's another option for students. So just, just to dig down just a smidgen yeah. deeper, if I can, you've made a mention of advisories. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the structure? Is it age graded? Uh, to what extent are they grouped? Mm -hmm. And, and how's, what's that look like? Sure. I teasingly like to say that I have a sorting hat in my office, that uh, Harry Potter, that I can decide which advisory they're in, but it's not quite that cool. Um, they are uh, multi-age, ninth through 12th grade, so about four students in each grade level. Um, again, when students start with us, having that conversation with, with the student and family, trying to figure out um, you know, what's the best fit for them. You know, and obviously things come into play like, you know, an advisory is full, so that one might be off the table and, and um, you know, working around that. But um, so they have, uh, typically they're with that same advisor from the time they start with us till the time they graduate. Um, and advisory could be the, the full day every day if a student chose to do that. They start their day in their advisory, um, we do 45 minutes of silent reading, and then there's an advisory check-in um, every day. You know, Mondays uh, typically tend to be a little bit longer. It's, you know, how was the weekend? What are your plans for the week? Do we need to check in personally on, on things? Um, typically once a week, advisories will do some sort of community building uh, activity. When I was a full-time advisor, um, we did a lot of a lot of breakfast, a lot of food, because nothing brings people together better than food. And so we, we did a lot of those things, celebrating birthdays, things like that. Um, Wednesdays, school-wide, we have a three-building campus, but uh, Wednesdays is some sort of team-building, community-building activity um, so that 
you know, if I'm doing some, uh, you know, some uh, initiative kind of thing that gets a little noisy and crazy, I'm not interfering with other people. And so everyone's kind of doing those things. Um, we do a number of service learning out of the building kind of things as advisories. But really, it's the design of the advisory is to have students get to know each other, their advisor, have that long-term relationship. So it's not just um, this student-teacher relationship. I, I'd like to say, you know, advisors are teachers and mentors and coaches and, uh, you know, the person to give you a gentle kick in the butt when you're slacking, but also the shoulder to cry on when you need it. Um, our parents talk a lot about having that advisory model that it's so nice at the high school level to know I have one adult I can connect with if I need things, someone who knows what's going on with my student. Um, I don't have to sort through five, six, seven periods of the day to find out. Um, and, and they really like the openness of the communication that we have with that. Um, and so a student could you know, in theory, they could be working on their projects the majority of the day in their advisory. Um, there's a lot of other opportunities for them to mix with other advisors and content specialists, and we run workshops and seminars that students can sign up for, and they're doing those field studies and things like that. But um, advisory is always their home base. So my, my sense of it is when, when people talk about the idea of giving kids as much freedom as you give your kids mm -hmm. is that it turns into chaos um, that, you know, kids are running amok all over the place and they're not really engaged in their stuff. And, you know, nobody really knows what's going on, but my sense of it from you is that that's just not the case that yeah. kids um, when they are focused on something again, that they're interested in that they care about. And when they have an adult that is shoulder to shoulder with them and, and helping them through that, that that's a, that's a pretty powerful experience. So um, how do you allay the fears of people? Because I'm sure that that's a concern that some people have when they come into your school, that, it, that the structures are so different that, you know, they kind of think, well, how does anything get done? So is it just those, those student exhibitions once a month, or is it um, again, just, you know, talking to people, how do you, how do you do that? Yeah, you know, again, when someone's interested in enrolling, part of that enrollment process is giving them a tour of school. And one of the things that always comes back is just what you're saying. I was expecting chaos, and it, it's so calm. Um, it's, you know, I, I wouldn't even call it controlled chaos because it's, it's not chaos. It's, it's the beehive, the buzz of lots of things happening um, and, you know, I, I think we do this thing with adolescents where we really don't trust them to be able to self-monitor. We put all of these rules in sort of traditional school. I mean, my sort of example all the time is, you know, you spend 12 years in, in school and have to ask to go to the bathroom or get a, a bathroom pass. And then at the end, someone asks you, so what are you going to do after you graduate? And it's like, I don't know. I still have to raise my hand to go to the bathroom. Um, you know, I, I just think we do students a disservice when we don't trust them to be able to, to monitor and manage, you know, and obviously we're there all along the way to help out with that. Um, but, 
when we put in all of these structures and rules and you must sit in this seat and you have to raise your hand to get up and you don't have any control, I think that's when we have the problems and we get into all these power struggles. For us, it's very much the opposite. It's how can we help you accomplish your goal of graduating and how do you work best, where, where and when? Um, you know, and when you start to open those doors for students, they amaze you. Um, with the stuff that they do, um, you know, and, and you have to come into it and look um, with a lens that says, even as adults, we're not all working every minute of every hour that we're at work. There are times when you take a break, there are times when you talk with other people, socialization, particularly for teenagers is very important. You know, taking movement breaks is, is important. Um, and so if you're expecting to come into our school and see students sitting at desks in rows and taking notes, that's not happening. But if you're expecting, or if you come in and you see groups of students or individual students working on an aquaponics system or creating a, a card reader system um, with Raspberry Pis to um, open doors and, and uh, um, write the code to do that and just literally bopping from group to group or student to student saying, what are you working on right now? Um, that's, how you, that's how you see what our students are doing. So I have to ask, um, that's great for a school of 160 or 180 kids, right? Yep. Can, that, can that scale to a big high school with 2,000 kids in it, you think? Or is that, is that when it does become chaos? You know, I have a lot of friends who teach in the more traditional large school system, and I don't fault them for being in that large system and having to sort of have those structures and schedules in place. I honestly don't think it can scale to that large a number, and I don't think it's good for kids, honestly. Um, you know, if... If I were, you know, hired as a superintendent in a large district with large schools like that, I would want to break them up into smaller manageable sections within their building because I really don't think you can do that kind of thing with 2,000 people. Yeah, I think the tragedy of uh, all that money that Gates spent when they tried to, uh, tried to do that um, was they were just incredibly poorly advised and thought that all they literally had to do was just put them in different sized buildings and it seemed to be such a waste of energy and effort but more importantly of what they could have been doing which would have been much more successful um, can i just can i just dig behind a little bit the operation of the school and talk about the governance and structure mm -hmm. you talk about the school as being a teacher powered school which mm -hmm. sounds like you know marching down the streets with big flags <laughs> and whatever else um, I'm interested in how that works sure. and what, which parts of it you find are unique and successful and which are the most challenging. Right. So within the sort of teacher powered um, organizational structure and, and there's a, there's a group, a teacher powered group. Um, there's, there's a, a number of components that um, you can uh, adhere to that uh, would make you a teacher powered school. But for us, it really started before that. Um, the original legislation for charter schools um, allowed and even promoted 
um, teacher majority school boards and we've kept that through our 20 years and so um, we have a, a nine member school board five of them are licensed teachers two of those are parents and two of them are community members um, they're voted in um, you know it we have to follow all of the um, the school board open um, meeting laws and all of that um, and that you know is empowering to have uh, the, the people who are directly involved be on the board, um, but it's also incredibly transparent. Uh, as teachers, you know, you know and understand the budget. You're part of making the school budget. You're part of um, all that's involved with that. Um, and then for us, we've kind of taken it down to the next level where there are some teacher-powered schools that don't have a director, administrator, um, someone in my position where all of the duties are shared and people have different roles within the teaching staff and um, report to the State Department of Ed on some of those things and take on other components. Um, as a staff, we decided um, that we want to have someone, they decided they wanted someone who, you know, signs the checks and uh, does the reports to the Department of Ed and has someone in that role. Um, but the majority of the decisions are made on Tuesday afternoons around the table at staff meetings um, and, and or at our monthly board meetings with lots of input from staff. Is it perfect? No. Um, you know, it's one of those interesting things where, you know, five of the teaching staff as board members are my boss and I'm the boss, you know, for whatever that means. Um, but, you know, we have that kind of a, a back and forth that way. But, you know, for us, it's never really been an issue because it's based on this common goal, um, a common shared uh, investment in the success of the school uh, so people feel like they really have a voice um, they know what's going on at all times um, if you know changes or issues come up people feel like they can be um, open and heard on what they're saying um, sometimes that comes down to a vote or you know when it's coming to the school board as a vote as teachers, you know you have the majority, and so you can um, you can affect change in ways that are meaningful for you and for students. Um, but you also, you know, I, I spent a lot of years before I was director on the board, uh, served as the board chair for six years. You know, you have to put your board hat on, and sometimes having that board hat on um, is very different than your teacher hat, um, and what might be in your best interest um, as an individual might not be in the best interest for the organization and you know you have to be able to to separate those two things so just to just to finish on that space then the obvious question that we've sort of avoided is is the fine are the finances mm -hmm. and i i'm assuming it you know that comes under legislation but i'm also interested in the one to 16 read the ratio yeah. that somehow you've been able to manipulate the finances to ensure that's possible. Whereas, as we all know, many schools would say that's impossible. Um, how's that done? So we 
um, as a charter school in Minnesota, um, we're given the same dollar amount per student with a few exceptions. Uh, we can't levy local tax dollars and um, not everything flows through. And so we're, we're, we're managing on about the same amount. Um, and so, you know, when you look at a budget for 180, 185 students, that's what you start with. And we as a team, as a staff team, um, we're committed to keeping class sizes small. And so when you do that, you have to look at how do you do, how do you save in other ways? And one of the ways that we do that um, is we minimize the administrative overhead. And, you know, so we have uh, one director and myself uh, who also teaches some workshops and seminars who picks up some other things. Um, teachers here wear several hats and, and pick up additional things. Um, but it's also sort of where you want to go. Um, you know, we're not large enough to have some of the things that I think are probably very costly in a large district, um, like sports and all that comes with, with that. Um, so it's it's really comes down to all right you know what your what your you know your budget is you know how much your revenue is what are you committed to what do you want to make sure are priorities for us those priorities have always come down to small class sizes um, strong staff development um, being in a good technology space where we're staying up to date or ahead of the curve in, in technologies for students and staff, and then having those expeditions as part of what we do as our, our you know, our philosophy. Um, and, you know, some years we can put more into those areas than others, um, and other years we have to pull back. And, and you can be fairly, you know, fluid and, and move fairly quickly within those year to year looking at what your enrollment is and, and what your goals are. Um, our staff are, you know, competitively paid, but they're never going to probably hit the top end of a large suburban district um, as far as, as teacher pay. And we've had these conversations. Um, you know, if we went to a, a 20 to one or a 24 to one ratio, what would that mean? Um, but what we knew and what we agreed on as as a staff team, and this was before I even took over as director, and when I was on the board, we had these conversations about, you know, where do we want to be? How do we want the school to function? What's important to us? What's best for students? Um, and so, you know, you maybe give up that top end of the pay scale, but you certainly, as a as a staff member here, you have a whole bunch of autonomy. You have a lot of ownership in what happens. You get to be a part of that decision making. And for the staff we've had, and we have great staff retention, um, they that's been more important for them. I think it's it's great when values drive the work. And um, too often, you know, I, I think that that get, gets lost, or or at least it becomes secondary or tertiary or something. You know, it's not it's not the number one driver. 
Um, so I, I just had one more question for you, and I, you know, we really appreciate your time to tell us about um, what sounds like an amazing school um, that that you guys are running. Um, I, I read something where you were talking about your staff as as being they're all learners, and um, you know that's obviously something that we talk about a lot in, right. in the context of it's almost more important now to be a learner than it is to be a teacher. Because um, if kids aren't developing as learners, if we as adults aren't modeling learning and really are, have some expertise around how to help kids develop as learners, then um, that's, a, that's a deficit for kids if they're waiting for someone to teach them something these days. So I wonder if you could just talk about your culture a little bit around that. I mean, what does that look like? You, you mentioned, I think, that teachers have a lot of autonomy. Um, I would assume they'd have autonomy in the ways that they choose what their professional learning looks like as well. So just talk a little bit about that culture of learning that you've been able to develop at your school. And, and you hit it on the head. It, it is very much a culture of learning. Um, we challenge each other as staff to continue um, to be continual learners. Um, you know, we all come to this profession with things outside of our content area that we're interested in, that we're good at. And so it starts with that, you know, it's the same thing when I talk to students about what are you interested in, what are you passionate about, what do you want to know more about? It's the same thing with staff. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a biology teacher by license, but I have a lot of other things that I'm interested in and that I brought to the table um, with my students. And that's just the start of it. One of my roles, I think, as, as director is to view the staff as my advisory and to support and encourage the staff to continue to, to learn and to provide opportunities for, for development that are maybe outside of sort of the norm of what, you know, a, a typical teacher staff development would be. Um, you know, I have one staff member right now who's really interested in starting um, a, a beehive and, and beekeeping. Um, because he's got students who are interested in it. And so he's geeking out on all of that and taking some community ed classes on how to do that. And how is he going to um, connect that with, with students and student learning? And so now we have, you know, beehives being built right now in preparation for when our, our hive or our queen arrives, um, doing that kind of a thing. Um, every Tuesday at our, our staff meetings, one of the things that we do is we share student and staff project ideas. What, what are people doing? Um, how can, there's, there's a section in the, in the outline, I need help with. And that's the place in the staff meeting to say, I'm interested in learning more about this. Do you know something about it that you can share with me as another staff member or do you have a resource or someone who can do that? Um, and so it really becomes that, that culture of continually learning. Um, it's also this letting go of having to be the knower of all information um, because our students come to us with all kinds of things that they already know or they're interested in knowing more about. And you just, you can't possibly know everything. And so, um, you know, humbling yourself a bit to be able to say, I don't know a thing about that, 
but I'm curious to learn with you and support you in that. Um, wow, does that switch the, the framework um, with students when you can admit, I don't know about that, but I want to learn and let's, let's figure this out together. Um, that just changes the whole teaching dynamic and it, it becomes that culture of learning. Yeah, I, I think that taking that stance as an adult in the classroom is really powerful. Um, and it, it does then model for kids the whole kind of inquiry part of learning, you know, that there are many things that we don't know, most things we don't know, and that we have right. to constantly um, be, be, uh, be just looking around the world and finding our own teachers and finding that information and, and doing all that sorts of stuff. Well, listen, Peter, really appreciate the time. And, and it's a fascinating story. Um, we always love hearing stories of schools that are doing it differently and um, that are, are serving kids, though, in, in being successful in the same life, if you know what I'm saying, right? That kids are all going out into the same world, but they're just taking a different path with you. And, and it, it sounds like a pretty powerful um, learning opportunity and experience for them. So I really appreciate you taking the time to share it with us. Absolutely, and thanks for having me. Um, Congratulations, Peter. It's, a, it's an absolute credit, the work you're doing there. Thank you.